0: And importantly, it helps set the tone for the continuing journey of parenting. Hi, welcome back to the fourth trimester. This is Sarah Trott, and I'm here with my co-host, Esther Gallagher. And today we have a special guest, Kimberly Johnson, with us. And uh, just to give you some background on Kimberly, she is a somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner And I asked her about somatic, and she has explained that that is really about the feeling of experiencing things through the body. And Kimberly, will give you a chance in a moment to clarify further on that. She's also a certified sexological body worker. She's a doula. She's a postpartum care advocate and a single mom. She works at the intersection of birth, sex, and trauma. She specializes in birth injuries, birth trauma, and sexual healing. These are all hugely relevant for our show um, so, we're so thrilled to have her. She's also recently written a book uh, where she's the sole author that's being produced by Shambhala Publications November 2017. So, we'll put a link to that on our site as soon as it is available. The book is called The Fourth Trimester A New Mother's Guide to Healing Your Body, Balancing Your Emotions, and Restoring Your Vitality. And I just want to also quickly remind all of our listeners that. If you're interested in receiving our newsletter, you can go to the fourth trimesterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of our site and sponsoring us, we'd be hugely grateful. You can go to Patreon.com and there's also a link on 4 to become a sponsor. So welcome, Kimberly Johnson.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hi. Hi. Tell us more about where you're from, what
0: you do, how you got into doing what you're doing.
1: I am from California, from San Diego, but I lived all over the world, and the last place I lived was Brazil for eight years before I moved back here to California. Uh, I help new moms reassemble themselves physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and sexually after they have babies. Uh, I'm a body worker, so I do that through touch most of the time when touch is appropriate, and sometimes that's hands on hands in touch. So I work vaginally and sometimes anally when necessary. Um, so I kind of work in the core of the core of things, and um I help women. I also created a process called the birth rehearsal where I take women through <clears throat> in a bodily sense, so through touch and nervous system, Kind of surfing the nervous system, uh, help p- women find what the difference between vaginal pressure and fecal pre- or rectal pressure are, what the difference between, you know, how to find your pushing muscles before you're actually giving birth. And so um, the education starts there and helping women prepare for postpartum period. And then I help women actually during the postpartum period and you know, as you know, the postpartum fourth trimester, you know fourth trimester is a finite period of time, but postpartum recovery itself is um, not such a finite period of time. So I help women at all different stages uh, reclaim their sexuality, find out who the mother that they are is compared to what they thought, who they thought they might be. And I do that all um, through the body. So through listening to the nervous system, you know we can, think that we want something or think that we are a certain way and the body is telling another story. So I listen to the stories that the body is telling. Thank you for that work. It's pretty groundbreaking. There's not a lot of people who do it because the way that we look at medicine is so separate that, you know, if people have just this last week, I had two clients come in for incontinence And one, uh, which means they're wetting their pants um, either when they sneeze or jump or just any time without knowing that they had to go to the bathroom. And one of them was told that she needed a hysterectomy by two different doctors. And I kept listening to her story, waiting for the part where there would be any indication at all that she needed a hysterectomy, like, you know, a cyst or um, endometriosis or some kind of lining, you know, all the different reasons why a hysterectomy might be necessary. And... So I had to educate her about the fact that you know, I thought maybe she was prolapsed. She, everything was intact. She was just having incontinence. So um, she was able to save her uterus and not get the hysterectomy. And then I had another client coming in, and she'd just been doing like 75 kegels a day for 20 months because she thought just kegel, 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 that's what's going to help her pelvic floor. <laughs> and yet she was really, really hypertense, and it was actually the tension that was causing the incontinence. And so uh, I'm really lucky that I am able, like those doctors didn't even do the minimum, which would be send them to physical therapy. The second one was told to just keep having as many babies as she wanted. And then she could have surgery afterwards to fix it. So just basically wet your pants as long as you're having kids, and then we'll do something to fix it, which really there's not much surgery that you can do to fix incontinence. I said, well, what did they tell you they were going to do? And she said, they told me that they were going to tighten my pelvic floor. And I was just like, you've got the tightest pelvic floor I've ever felt. Long distance runner, raised Baptist, uh, (laughs) never liked sex and neuroscientist. And like, so you're going to have incontinence until you get a surgery and and the frustrating thing is even a surgery wouldn't help with that and then you feel like even you know your your body's failing because you don't have the right information so i feel lucky that you know i'm at the intersection of basically giving people the whole perspective on what contributes to recovery and pelvic health mm.
2: wow yep you are at the intersection and the good news is that there's a there's more and more people studying um this approach and modality, but we've got a long way to go in this culture, larger culture for addressing women's lady parts <laughs> and how they properly function and how they work on our behalf, not against mm-hmm. us. Sure, it'd be nice to learn these things when you're 12 <laughs> or 10 and not after you've had a baby. So I think we get some pretty limited and therefore very poor information about how to use our bodies. Kegel's being
1: the point in case. Right. right yeah. Because, it, well, an embodied awareness means that the person that's transmitting information to you actually understands that thing in their own body, not just as an idea. Right. And because there's so much shame that basically shrouds our genitals. It's rare that we would encounter a practitioner that's actually looked into their own shame matrix so that they could offer the information Mm -hmm. needed in a way that someone would understand and take forward. Mm -hmm. Want to talk more about that? Our culture doesn't, we don't have any education around real sexuality. Like our, we don't even know the difference between sex, sexuality, sexual identity you know, most people's sex education, and and nowadays, even more like the younger generations, sex education is just coming from what's accessible online through porn. And that's giving a very one directed unilateral perspective on what sex is, which is basically like shaved genitals, big dicks, and Mm -hmm. women performing arousal in a way that mimics male arousal and mimics a reproductive framework of what sexuality looks like. And what the postpartum period does is call us to feminize sex. But since we haven't even had, most of us, a language to talk about sex, a language to understand our desires, then it's like this gift that we get postpartum, but in a very confusing time. So something that could be a very large opportunity to redefine like what is it that I want sexually who am I what do I like Um, a lot of women just find postpartum all of a sudden they realize they were tolerating or accommodating in ways that they didn't even know and postpartum they're not willing to do that anymore and then our cultural conversation around postpartum sex is like oh well I'm just like touched out or Like my baby's already pulling on me all the time or my breasts don't belong to my husband anymore. That's all about limits of like, I don't want this. I don't want that. And our conversation really gives us an out. The way that we're presented that sex happens is that men approach women and then we either give them the gift or we don't. And then postpartum, like all my clients pretty much say the same thing. Like my husband's so patient, but like, I just don't know. And uh, I just don't have, I have a low libido, but it's really... A lack of empowerment to to define well, what is it that you do want instead mm-hmm. of what is it? What are all the things you don't want? How how what could what could you offer that would actually feed you, recharge you, um, be the very thing that would not exhaust you but would give you energy? But if we only think about sex as penis and vagina penetration, that's not appealing postpartum for most women, and so it's this opportunity to put the pussy put female genitals at the center or not even genitals, just pleasure overall at the center of the interaction. And for women to develop an ability to say what they, what they would like and what is heartening and what is nourishing for them. But, you know, we're at a bit of a deficit when the conversation is so, you know, most people's conversation around sex is, is just, you know, how many times a week or not they do it. And people are very apologetic about that usually like, Oh, well, it's only this many times. And, and then if you ask, well, what actually is happening during the interaction, it's, it's a tally taking like, well, like best case scenario, I go down on him. He go down, goes down on me. I come, he comes. And all that takes like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that success because the big old orgasm has happened because, you know, now even doctors are saying orgasm is good for my health. So like I got an orgasm because you just got to have that because that's just good for you. Yeah. Um, so it's um, necessary as, as people that are interested in supporting women postpartum and couples is that um, we're able to work with our own shame and our own relationships so that when we're and our own bodies and attend to, you know, what is or isn't working well in our pelvises, so that we can offer that support from an embodied place, not just from a mental place. Because people get enough intellectual information. What they don't get is information about what the, their body is telling them.
2: Mm. Let's imagine somebody coming to you, not prenatally, but in the postpartum period who's saying, I had a difficult birth, I had a third degree tear, breastfeeding was difficult, but seems like it's going okay now. And I'm feeling like I'm supposed to be experiencing more intimacy with my partner, but I just don't feel up to it.
0: And can I just ask, are we talking about within the first six weeks? Because there's usually like a period where doctors would say, oh, no, you want to wait? To heal? Mm-hmm. Or, do you mean before or after that part, Esther?
2: Oh, I would say after because now they're feeling pressure, <laughs> right?
1: Right. Again, it's about what we're talking about is of what is sex, you know, and, and opening really like opening the treasure chest that is the possibility of what our sexuality is. Mm-hmm. So that happens before that. That's just an ongoing thing. That's part of who sure. we are. So that's like making time each day, even in the first six weeks to just make eye contact with your partner. And, you know, I call it street cleaning, clear any resentments, have five minutes where you say, how are you not like, how are we doing as parents, but like, how are you doing as a person right now? How are you doing as a person? Do you have the support you need? Do you have the support you need? I love you. Uh, A way of maintaining contact. Or if, you know, touch, figuring out, well, what touch do I want? You know, new moms need everything that new babies need. So just like you would swaddle a new baby, you'd want to swaddle a mom. Just like you, a new baby needs eye contact and smiles, a new mom needs that. Just like a new baby needs a lot of nourishment and, you know, the the most healthy food there is, breast, breast milk. A new mom needs those things. So... I think the conversation is ongoing, but if this person comes to me and has had the third degree tear, and let's say they're 16 weeks postpartum, and they're starting to feel like they should feel sexual, but they don't really feel sexual, and they're starting to feel like, well, my husband's not even asking me, but like I don't know how long he's going to wait for me, and every single person who comes to me feels they should be farther along than they are, feels they should be more healed. They, you know, and it could be, I mean, it's crazy. There could be someone who comes to me at five weeks because they fib because they know I usually wait to six weeks to do any work. And then they'll just be, they'll tell me their story and it'll sound to me like they must be like six months postpartum. And then they tell me they had a baby five weeks ago and I'm like, go back to bed. Like, why are you even here? Like, go lay down. But they, you know, are, are, it's so strong, this thing about, you know, we got to do everything and, you know, get back to where we were before and you know, there's a lot of fear. You know, a lot of people use the word postpartum as a substitute for the word postpart you know, postpartum depression. And um so for that women woman, I mean, what I try to do is I give people the lay of the land. So people aren't always all of us aren't always informed about what are the possible things that are contributing to how you feel. So most people don't come to me just because they want to have more sex than they're having. Most people come to me because they're in pain. So they're having painful sex Mm -hmm. or the thought, you know, some people come to me for the emotional side of it, but most people are like, it's painful or I'm having, I'm prolapsed or I think I'm prolapsed or the doctor told me I'm prolapsed, but I'm not sure. Or I can see my organs from my vaginal entrance, but my doctor says I'm not prolapsed or I'm having searing pain during sex. And my birth was great. And I don't know why. So people usually come to me because there's some discomfort. So let's just say if this person had a third-degree tear, that probably sex is uncomfortable if they haven't had any scar tissue work or any attention to that area. Then, you know, if they've told me already they've had a third-degree tear, then I don't, I probably don't need to go into a whole spiel. I can just say to them, you know, I'm going to look at their posture. So I'm going to look at how they carry their pelvis. I'm going to look at how they're structured. I'm a, I am was a rolfer. I am a rolfer. So That's in my wheelhouse. So, you know, look at someone's profile. How is their weight bearing through their pelvis, through their feet? How's their pelvic floor functioning as I can see from the arches of their feet? And then the next thing I'm going to look at is, like, biochemistry. So that requires some questions, like, about nutrition and basically what their body is absorbing. Are they vegetarian? Have they been eating in a certain way for a while um, are they getting enough of what they need postpartum if they're breastfeeding? You know, all of those kinds of questions. But if someone's had a third degree tear, then it's pretty straightforward that probably part of their problem is scar tissue. And so I'm going to go into their pelvic floor with their, obviously, if they want me to, they're going to ask me to do the internal work and soften the scar tissue in in the way that the pelvis and specifically the muscles of the vagina and pelvic floor work are kind of like a loose knit sock. So when you're pushing the baby through it, the, the knitting can get pulled and pressed in certain ways, and it can stay that way. And so really what I do is go in and loosen the parts that are too tight and create more tone in the places that are too loose, and then make sure that the body's not creating adhesions around the scar. So a scar is just the place where it tore and is restitched. Um, or a, was cut if there's an episiotomy, but the the problem is when there's an inflammatory environment and there's a reason for the body to start create creating adhesions, and those adhesions are usually what's causing discomfort. So the sooner that you get to the scar, the better, because the less likely that it's forming adhesions that are going along a fascial trajectory. But I will just work on the tissue around it and basically give it return it to its the shape that's most op- optimal for its functioning, yeah. and then that often includes the most important part, which is following them with their birth story. So, most people who have a tear like that—not all, but many—or an episiotomy, there's some trauma. You know, and in birth is complicated these days. So, um, how the birth happened affects how we recover in the fourth trimester and it affects what our body stores and and registers as pain. And so if there's a painful association with that area, that's going to affect a woman's desire to have something in that territory again. And then if that woman has a past history of sexual trauma or past history of gynecological surgeries or, um, you know, so many different things that can contribute to that, but those are specific things, you know. In our pelvis lives all of our past sexual experiences, lives our introduction to sexuality. Those get blown open, oftentimes, even if it's in an unconscious way. Um, also, I work a lot on cesareans and VBACs because the body is really unsure. Like, okay, I was in labor. Some people, if it's not a scheduled cesarean, and then at some point there was a redirect, and the body wasn't able to complete that cycle to. A baby coming out the vagina and then all of a sudden the vagina is expected to have something else coming into it when it never had the very thing that was supposed to leave go out and there is a there's a somatic confusion there and until that confusion is resolved it's not easy for the sexuality piece to come back online and that can be very confusing for people who've had cesareans because they're like what's wrong why is there something wrong with my vagina when I had something come out my belly <laughs> but, you know, they still had a baby sitting on their pelvic floor for nine months and or thereabouts. And <clears throat> there's still a process, you know, the kind of somatic experiencing work that I do is about completing cycles in the nervous system. And the body is a part of, you know, it's a manifestation of the nervous system, but it's a part of it. And a cesarean is an in by nature an incomplete process for the body. A, our bodies are made to push babies through them, through our vagina. I realize there's many reasons why that doesn't often happen, but that's still a cycle that the body needs to complete. And if it doesn't, it makes it complicated, not only for sexuality, but for subsequent births.
0: Sure. Yep, sure does. How would someone go about resolving that kind of confusion?
1: Well, the way that I do it is I take... I studied with Pam England in a process called Birth Story Medicine, where she also draws a lot from Peter Levine's work, who's the somatic experiencing practitioning, like creator of that modality. And so I do the internal work and I listen to what the body's saying and I listen to what the person is saying and I help them to understand if there's an embedded belief about themselves or their body based on the birth that they have. And I help them renegotiate that. And and usually it's through witnessing, so our body has a recall. And when I, you might have experienced this as moms, where if you're if you have your baby and your baby is have you know let's say the baby's just crying and you're trying to figure out why is the baby crying, and so you talk to the baby and you're like, are you hungry? And they're still crying. And then like, are you tired? And they're still crying. And then like, are you upset because it's so noisy outside? And they're still crying. And then you say, are you frustrated because you heard your dad and I fighting? And then they just stop crying. And the body is kind of like that. Like, if you listen to it and it has and it offers to you what that thing is, when you're in the territory touching it, it will let it go. It will dissolve a scar. It will heal a prolapse. It will have that completion. Sometimes you'll, the woman will have uterine contractions who had a cesarean. She'll feel that like her body will literally re-enter the birth space and try to complete it and will complete it. It happens in the way that any kind of healing happens where you bring awareness to something and then I'm actually touching the territory at the same time, which is what is sort of the trifecta of it is like witnessing plus touch plus somatic recall the body wants to heal. The body wants to move towards alignment and wholeness and full, full access to life force. We actually are designed to move towards wholeness when we have the support and conditions that we need. So I'm not saying that everybody who has a cesarean is traumatized, but what I am saying is that, that it is a surgery to the body. So the body registers it as trauma, even if the mind doesn't. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that affects certain people because of prior experiences. So, if you just like anesthesia, anesthesia affects some people more than others for a variety of factors. Like, I'm a redhead, and redheads are notoriously um, either overreactive to anesthetic or underreactive to it. So, it's just like one factor. But if you had previous surgeries, then you're going to be more susceptible to basically unwanted effects of anesthesia. And when you put your body under anesthetic of any kind, your body, your, your mind is anesthetized to the pain, but your body is still registering it, which is why people, even if they have an epidural recommends to give a local to do any kind of pelvic floor repairs, because it's, just, it's, it's actually anesthetizing that area too, rather than just anesthetizing your brain. So. If the body goes in, that is, the body is in a freeze state, which is one of immobility and helplessness, which means that that would predispose the other aspects, the other layers of yourself to also be in that state. And so we need to help restore empowerment ability to speak to say what we want to stand up for ourselves to state what we want around our pelvis specifically because i mean is there a bigger place where women dissociate than around our pelvises it's like we're just conditioned to it so actually to like be even in spiritual the spiritual world it's all about raising your awareness toward your head toward your head but as women we have a great capacity to connect to the cosmos and to connect through the upper chakras but pulling it down into our pelvises is challenging. And so if if there is an intervention, all of those interventions are kind of like skip frames in our body. And they require, like, we have to stay, pre- that's why it's so helpful to have a doula or to have somebody that's there to let you live in some pauses so that your body is digesting it as you go and all of you is coming through it at the same time. So with birth, it just happens to be one of those things. And you know, I know this podcast is about postpartum, but it's like you can't really separate the two because so much about what happens in the birth matrix in the altar of birth is what we take with us into the matrix of postpartum and this constellation of factors that ends up appearing like incontinence, which is really this amazing lesson that's risen to the surface that could be a key to our maturation. But our cultural dialogue is so impoverished about postpartum, which is like get your body back and go back. And our culture is so youth oriented that we don't really have that, you know, that's what your podcast, I'm sure, is part of its purpose is like let let's move forward and mature together and like let's make maturity be something that's attractive and something that we want. Like we want to integrate these parts of ourselves. Is that an easy process? No. But this period like rises to the surface, that which wants to be healed.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm going to back this up a little bit um, and flesh out an element of somatic experiencing that I think sometimes people don't quite understand unless it's really basically from a very basic central nervous system perspective, uh, described. And that is that in a stressful, potentially stressful situation, um, we have three options. Our nervous system will either fight, flee, or freeze. And Kimberly, uh, Referenced freezing earlier, um, and and I think the reason she may have referenced it is so often that's the option women have been given and and therefore take because fighting isn't allowed and fleeing is not of, often um, actually realistic. We can't run away mm-hmm. from the thing that's uh, threatening us. Mm-hmm. And birth is a perfect example. Birth and postpartum are perfect examples. You know, if you walk into a hospital and people are saying to you, well, we're going to do this to you now, uh, and it's necessary um, uh, because blah, 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 bad things will happen if we don't. Um, You're often experiencing, even if it not mentally, right? Not, Not from some sort of rational standpoint, you're experiencing that thing that's being done, whether it's an IV put in or a vaginal exam or whatever, um, as something that actually is threatening to you because it's painful, because it's doesn't seem necessary, whatever the reason. And so, so much of how we experience birth is potentially traumatic in these moments. Um, not to mention, you know, once you actually give birth, finally, at the end, towards the end of your labor, um, these these more, um, sometimes very normal, but physically uh, we, we think of them as physically damaging, right? A third-degree terror seems like a pretty intensive trauma. So, uh, and it's happening in a context where fight, flight, or freeze have been diminished. So that's sort of the very basis, right, for how somatic experiencing Uh, work happens. So there's a circuit, right? A central nervous system circuit is maybe that situation you really, what you were feeling compelled to do on a physiological level, not a mental level, is to flee the scene. And you couldn't, right? Or to fight with the people who are trying to do this thing to you that they say is necessary and you couldn't um, so this is in the mix for people like figuring out how to close the circuit of that central nervous system in that in the moment of the trauma am i on to something here kimberly
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and there's um We're always what's the reaction that comes to us is sometimes when I'm working with people postpartum, it's necessary to go back to the birth. But oftentimes, whatever those circuits that are, you know, loops that we run, like, you know, I had a client recently during her labor where the guy, the doctor that was on call that came in, you know, and when you're a woman in labor in a hospital, most of the time you're laying in a bed. And everyone else who comes in is standing up. So that's already a weak position just from a, like if you just think about animals, if one animal is on its two legs and the other animal is lying down, and you're obviously in a heightened state of awareness because you're having a baby. So all of your adrenaline and, and hormonal cocktail is at its height of protection. And then you're, you know, a lot of women are aware of not wanting interventions. And so they're being forced to being to basically straddle a, a, a very challenging thing, which is to give birth really means to let your parasympathetic nervous system, your rest and digest, release your sphincters and open them. And at the same time, you're on high alert because you're trying to defend your space. Make sure no interventions happen that you haven't consented to. Make sure that all the changing nurse staff has read your birth plan. Make sure that you know you're doing what you're best and so that it's basically a divided strategy for how our central nervous system really works so in a lot of ways we're putting women just even in that so you, even pregnancy and just how many tests there are and how many decisions to make put us in our neocortex when really at a time of birthing we need to be in our back brain and and we need to be in that place as much as possible postpartum as well it's post and we're also you know we need ideally we would have someone protecting the birth space for us so that we could genuinely relax and we weren't the one having to advocate for ourselves but instead that's not really how how things are happening right now and if you have a history of immobility whether that's you know you had a really dominating parent who always shut you down when you tried to speak up for yourself and so you just stopped talking or you were overpowered a lot in any, you know, maybe you had a lot of brothers and sisters and you were the one that never spoke up or, you know, there's all kinds of, it's our, our relationship to authority and power. And then especially when it comes to our pelvis is really full of lots of mixed messages and not a lot of practice. You know, if we had the sex education that we were talking about earlier, where at 13 years old, we could sit down with each other and just ask each other a question, like, how would you like to touch me for three minutes? And the person would say, oh, I'd like to stroke your arm. And you could say, actually, that doesn't sound very good. Would you play with my hand? And the other person could say, sure. And then you could change your mind. We'd actually have (laughs) practice talking about what we want and we don't want with our bodies. But as it is, we have sex education, minimally that it is, in a completely sterile Way that only appeals to the mind, and meanwhile we don't have any training or somatic language about sensations in our body, and that's a starting point for everyone listening here. And it's an ongoing practice, even for those of us who work in this uh, in this field. Is just like right now, right this minute. What do you notice in your body? I notice my heart is beating. I notice that my Like my butt is sweating a little bit where I'm in contact with my chair. Mm -hmm. I notice I'm talking really fast because I'm enthusiastic about the subject. I notice that I'm a little bit aware of what the temperature is on my hands. And that sensation language is also a key. It's a key in a lot of ways because. When you realize what's happening, like, so I started to say this, this client that I had, this doctor walked in who she didn't know she'd never seen before. And he had a very threatening presence. He wasn't trying to be threatening, but he just, that, that's his wiring. He had, and I felt it and she felt it right away. And then he, there was a, there was a heart rate D and it was from the way that she was lying because she's getting monitored. And I think probably there's like a cord compression on the way she was lying. So she rolled over to the other side. And when she rolled over, the heart rate came right back to normal. But he said, I have to do a vaginal check. And she hadn't done one yet because her water had broken and she really didn't want to be on the time clock. And she had a birth plan. She she had a history of trauma from a car accident and being in the army. And in her birth plan, it said, I need to know every procedure and I need to be well informed about what's happening. And he just really wasn't, he was kind of pulling an authority card, like I've got to do this. But he also wasn't saying this is an emergency because if he said this is an emergency, then of course, someone's going to like, quote unquote, comply. So he (laughs) gave her a cervical check. And from the way that she reacted to it, and first of all, she was in sympathetic arousal when he even started doing it, which means she was in a fight-or-flight response. Her eyes were darting around the room. Her, Her heart rate I could see in her throat had, like, accelerated. She was afraid. And if he had known how to read a nervous system, he would have waited until that response diminished. Because if you do a procedure when someone's already in that state, you're re-traumatizing them. And really, she felt a very disproportionate amount of pain while he was doing it because she has pain association in that area from her car accident. She's giving birth and she was afraid of being violated and not being listened to. So um these are real things. And as women, we're often kind of Pushed aside, or like, oh, well, the baby's healthy now. So, as long as the baby's healthy and you're healthy, then just be grateful. And that's the narrative that women are coming to me saying. So, I have to really give them permission to, like, yeah, that's amazing that you're healthy and your baby's healthy. But that's not the whole story. Like, you're allowed to have feelings about it. You're allowed.
2: Yeah. Not only that, it's a blame and shame scenario from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, you know, uh, unless you, do everything with full compliance. Um, And unless you set your own somatic reality aside in order to comply, um, when something bad happens to you or your baby, you'll have yourself to blame for it. And I really... (laughs) object to that, you know, I think it's, it's not realistic or fair and women Mm -hmm. are walking around with this, you know, from the beginning, not even necessarily realizing that it's a kind of cultural messaging that puts them one down Mm -hmm. in every situation they're about to experience. Definitely.
1: Definitely.
0: I mean, as a shortcut, I like paying attention to any time I feel myself using the word should or I hear it or I say it or I hear someone else say it. There's something about the word should Mm -hmm. that implies a judgment that implies there's something about this situation or you or the way you're feeling that um, isn't right. And I, I really just like to stop and pause and question that. If you mm-hmm. hear a doctor saying, oh, you should be fine. Or if you hear yourself thinking, oh, I should be sexual now or mm-hmm. whatever. That's how you were using the word earlier in that story. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I should be doing this or that. Or my husband's so patient. It's like, well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think the word should is a red flag in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: I'm so easy to skip over, right?
2: Like, just... Just having the wherewithal in this culture to witness that that word is being used, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in the first place uh, and everything that goes along with it um, is tricky. Mm Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if someone's feeling that they're in the hospital and someone says, I want to do an exam on you and they think, oh, well, I shouldn't be worried about this. I think what they're doing is they're denying their feelings. Well, and in a way, not that. I think,
2: as Kimberly was maybe pointing to by way of the example she used of a woman who'd had pelvic trauma beforehand, um, you know, when easily one in three women come to adulthood <laughs> um, and sex, there's Experience their sexuality, one in three has been in some way sexually traumatized. We've got a whole major thing happening all the time. And that's before they may have ever gotten pregnant and gone right. through this process.
1: Yeah, that's just um, the underlying. They're just,
2: they're just carrying it with them. So a vaginal exam may not seem like a big deal. To everybody who thinks it's a not a big deal. But if we all took a deep breath and asked ourselves, is this woman somebody who's been traumatized sexually? And the answer is likely to be yes. It's likely to be yes. It's not one in every 300,000, which would be enough of a reason to ask the question, has this woman been traumatized right Yep. um we just you know i mean i think
1: well that's really important to know too is that like trauma people think oh trauma i'm not traumatized because that word is so heavy and it sounds like you know you've been in a natural disaster or something but Mm -hmm. trauma isn't the thing trauma is how we respond to the thing so for some people a vaginal exam is like oh no big deal but for other people, it is. And in our mind, of course, we're going to try to talk ourselves out of it because we need the vaginal exam. And, like, why are we being so sensitive? And, like, we just have to do it. But a majority of the people who come to my office, one of the first things they say are, is, I'm so glad this doesn't feel like a gynecologist's office. And then <laughs> usually they they have some kind of memory about, like, they hate pap smears or they hate this or that something was painful and they weren't really treated like a person when they explained or expressed how something was feeling to them
0: mm-hmm. yeah okay there's a lot here that we've covered what yeah. do our listeners yeah and all really good stuff what do our listeners take away what do we do with this information how do we move forward if someone's um Expecting their first birth that's upcoming or they're in their postpartum period, which by the way, it does not mean postpartum depression. It just means after you've had your baby, which is typically like the first few months or maybe year after the baby's born like what do what do our listeners do with this information? How do they become more empowered?
1: Okay, well, the information that I've shared today because you know my book is about everything that you can do to prepare for postpartum and recover in the best. You know, most holistic way. But I think from what we've talked about today is develop a sensation awareness in yourself. And so that just means pause and notice what you're feeling in your body. Uh, Sometimes just that noticing is radical and also can be the healing in and of itself when we start to realize that our response to something is not as rational as we think it is and that our body is actually telling us something. And the body is more reliable than our mental filter most of the time. Mm -hmm. So um, listening to how your body feels in certain environments, around certain people, and with the closest, those your nearest and dearest and your partner, practice that with your partner, just a presence exercise. With them, sit sit with them side by side. I'm noticing that I feel tightness in my belly, and then they say I'm noticing desire that feels like leaning forward, and then and just practicing having an acceptance, uh, having a interaction, a dialogue on the sensation level brings a lot of intimacy because there's no interpretation there, there's no story behind it. It's just this is what I'm feeling in my body right now. Um, Another thing is definitely make an appointment at six weeks with a postpartum physical therapist, a holistic pelvic care PT, a sexological body worker, someone who's going to really be able to help you with your pelvic floor because doctors spend less than five minutes. they, They don't know anything about biomechanics. They rarely refer to PTs. So, if you feel like you need physical therapy, which some of you might know, like in other countries like France, you just get a physical therapist for six weeks after you have a baby for postural re education and pelvic health. So, every woman should have a six week pelvic floor consult and make your own health a priority. As much as you're caring for your baby, don't let it go. Don't let your incontinence just be something you deal with. Don't let your prolapse just be something you deal with. If you're feeling pain and discomfort, be proactive about attending to that and make that a sooner rather than later priority. And a lot of women say to me, when I tell them my price, they say they have to talk to their husbands about it. And if you frame things in a way that your partner understands and so do you, that how you're feeling in your pelvic floor and how you're feeling about being a mother in the state of your pelvic floor has everything to do with your ability to be intimate and engage. And you tell your partner, intimacy is very important to me. Like, I care about this. I'm super confused. I don't know how to go about this. I feel like I need, like, I feel like a virgin and I feel like I need to do sex differently. We're going to have to figure this out. But rather than assuming that they want something, assuming that you're not giving them what they want and not asking for what it is that you do want. So I call women forward to take care of of ourselves, get the support that we need to do that, and also not just relax into these old cultural norms about like, oh, my husband's always begging me for sex. And like, that's what he needs to be close. And yeah, I want to give it to him. So it's good for our relationship. But what is sex really doing for you and giving to you? And what is the sex that you want to have in your life?
2: Mm -hmm. Thanks, Kimberly.
1: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Wonderful work you're doing. Where can our listeners find out more from you?
1: Uh, at magamama.com and that's m-a-g-a-m-a-m-a.com if you sign up there you'll get kind of a walkabout of your pelvic floor so that you'll understand um all of the main landmarks and how to do a same kegel that's not really a kegel but how to activate <laughs> your pelvic floor and and also release it which is really impo- important um
2: boy that's great Yeah. I I love that idea of a walkabout of your pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a lot there. Yeah, Yeah. there sure is. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, great. Thank you so much, Kimberly. We've really enjoyed having you as a guest on our program.
1: Thank you. Very rich. All
0: right. Thanks again, everyone who's listening. Uh, As a reminder, again, you can go to fourth trimesterpodcast.com to hear more about Kimberly and this episode, but also prior episodes, sign up for our newsletter, become a sponsor, lots of good resources there. Uh, So thank you. And we'll talk to you soon.
1: You can. I wrote the song,
2: simple and true. I wrote the song. I sing a song for you. Hello again,
1: bicycle man. I know you're doing the best that you can. I wrote the song. Simple and true I wrote the song I sing a song for you